0: Oh, you can have a seat. My name is Nate. Good to be the pastor here at New City. Glad you're here. Uh, I do want to tell you, off the start, that uh, I gave up cheese. Uh, so uh, I'm rooting for the Seahawks today, and so that's my team. I do know that uh, I do know 2020 is going to be. This is the best way to start a sermon by offending like so many of the Packer fans. They're all like, "I'm not listening. I don't care what good news you have." All right. So if you're a Packers fan, um, I'm not praying for you all right today. So just, but seriously. Um, Uh, It's a good year. We know 2020 is going to be a good year because the Patriots aren't in the Super Bowl, so that's a good news story. I knew we could find unity on something, right? We could find unity there. Alabama is not the national championship, which is good news too, so I'm glad, I'm glad for that. All right. Uh, somebody's saying, hey, is there a Bible study in this somewhere? All right, so Daniel chapter 1, that's where we're going to start today. Daniel 1, uh, I'm going to read verses 1 to 9, and that'll be the setup, but we'll be in Daniel 1 through 21 today in our study, all right? In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them in, uh, to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of nobility youth without blemish, of good appearance, and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge and understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and the wine that he drank, and uh, they were to be educated for three years. And at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel, he gave the name Belshazzar. Hananiah, he called Shadrach. Mishael, he called Meshach. And Azariah, he called Abednego. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. Now, the story continues that Daniel got fat while eating vegetables, which is why I'm not a vegan. And, uh, and so he, he and the rest of his boys got, you know, a little heavy. It, it proved that God was faithful. God gave them learning abilities and the capacity uh, to understand for the benefit of a pagan king who didn't stand uh, with the God of Jerusalem. And the whole story is an interesting story story. And I I really want to uh, highlight a a major theme in this series, Recapturing the Wonder. And that is, I think in Daniel's story and the other sort of tales in the Bible of exile are appropriate metaphors for our current state in the American church. And I I feel like there's a lot of younger generations growing up who are looking at the world, particularly looking at Christendom within the American context, the American world, and they're a little disenchanted. And they're looking and they're going, I don't quite understand what's going on and why are things happening the way they are? Uh, where is my place in the world? Uh, what is going on with Christianity? And it seems like there's been a sudden change. And if you're over the, over, over the age of 45 and you grew up in the church, uh, you are somebody who could look back on your story and go, something's different today than it was when I was a kid. The way people view Christianity is different. The way I view myself is different. The way I view the world is different. Something has changed. And we begin Daniel with a significant and violent change that profoundly affected everything. Uh, you see it in verse 1 of our reading. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. It was a very violent change in this one verse. Uh, life as it was, uh, with J- Jerusalem as the center of worship and the center of the Jewish world at a particular time, uh, had been besieged and had been overcome. And the three questions I really want to examine today is, uh, are these, like, what has changed? What's changed for Daniel? But also, you know, what's changed for us? Uh, the other question is, uh, what has not changed? What's, what didn't change in Daniel's context? What hasn't changed for us? And how are we to live in a changed world while clinging to what hasn't changed? Those are the kind of three big ideas for the day. So the first one, what has changed? Well, Daniel begins with a people in exile, uh, it begins with the, with the people who have lost their center. See, in exile, your beliefs and your way of life are a, majority, are, are a minority view, and they stand in contrast and even sometimes opposed to uh, the majority view in the culture. And when you're in exile, you're, you're no longer the center, and everything doesn't revolve around you, but you, you're now on the side, and something else is in the center, and everything is revolving around it. And you see this very plainly in the text. Uh, the king uh, commanded Ashpenaz, the chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both the royal family and of nobility, youth without blemish, good appearance, skillful in all wisdom, uh, endowed with knowledge, understanding and learning, and uh, competent to stand in the king's palace. In other words, he wanted to take the best and the brightest from, uh, from, from the people of Judah. He wanted to take the best and the brightest of those folks and to teach them the literature of the language of the Chaldeans. In other words, to re-educate them. Uh, The king assigned them a daily portion of the food uh, the king ate and all the wine that he drank, and he begins this process of uh, sort of re-familiarizing them, or actually familiarizing them for the first time to a new culture, uh, to enculturate them. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah, the tribe of Judah, and the chief of the eunuchs gave them names, and this is when their identities even began to, to experience a profound shift. Daniel, he called Belshazzar, Hananiah, he called Shadrach, and so it goes. See, I think exile is more than a fact of history that we could point to and say that's what happened, but it is an appropriate metaphor for the Christian life. It's more than just an event that we can study that was in history, but it's a metaphor, a a word picture, if you will, for how to live the Christian life. In fact, Peter uses exile as that metaphor. He says, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to live your distinction, abstain from these things, but live your distinction. In other words, I, I, I urge you to, to embrace the narrative of exile. Uh, Lee Beach says it this way in uh, his book. He says, The stories of Esther, Daniel, and Jonah are a particular kind of exilic literature that offers a hopeful vision and compelling model of life in exile. These diasporic advice tales, key phrase here, as they are sometimes called, offer the same kind of generative vision to contemporary exilic communities as they did to the ancient ones uh, which they were first directed. In other words, when you read the stories of Esther, Daniel, and Jonah, you will find in them an example of how to live in exile. And as Peter says, I want you to embrace that identity as a sojourner. This is not your home. You're, you are going to your home. But this is not your home. This is not the promised land, but it is, it is in front of us. We are sojourning, and we're exiles. We don't belong to it. We're in it, but we're not of it, as Jesus would say. See, exile has always been central to the story of God's people living in a sinful world. As soon as sin entered the world, people began to experience that the world was inhospitable to human life and human existence, human flourishing. And so we have been exiled since sin entered into the world. That's been a part of our existence. And when you look at the kind of biblical history, you will see that exile is a key uh, sort of story in the story of biblical history even the history of Israel, Abraham begins in exile. He's in exile in Egypt because of famine. And then there's a pursuit of land. And you have uh, Moses and Joshua pursuing the promised land. And then you have uh, all the period of the judges where people are disobedient and God's continually faithful. And then eventually people go, we want a king. We want an empire like the rest of the empires of the world. And they experience this season of kingship, which doesn't last very, very long. As you have Saul and David and Solomon, then you have a divided kingdom. And after the divided kingdom, then you have uh, the various conquerings, including the one where Babylon conquers here, Judah in our text today. And you have exile all over again. See, God's people were always meant to be a living critique of empire, they were not meant to emulate the dynamics of empire. And God warned them about it. Uh, when everybody was crying out, they were, they were crying out for this, for this king. And they were, they were saying, we want a king. We really want a king. God said, if you get a king, he's going to do things that you don't want him to do. And in fact, God said that through Samuel. You can read about it in 1 Samuel 8, 10 and 18. So Samuel said, these will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons to war. He will take your daughters to serve his pleasures. He will take your money and taxes that burdened you with his ambitions. You see my summary statements here. And in that day, you will cry out because uh, of your king. You will not be satisfied because the, uh, the, the empires of this world cannot provide what God's prophetic people and priestly people are supposed to provide. See, it could be said, I think, that God's people are more at home in exile than they are at the center of earthly power structures. In fact, the Christians should be uh, embracing an exilic existence. Uh, there was a book years ago written by Michael Frost, and i had forgotten how formative it was for me, how formative it was for the beginnings of New City when we started New City 10 years ago almost now today. Uh, we'll turn 10 on Easter Sunday, which is a kind of a really cool thing. And, and what, years ago, when we were like thinking through kind of what kind of community do, do we want to try to create, what's the unique space that God's calling us to create, Exiles, this book by Michael Frost, was an important one for me. In the book, he says, exiles are driven back to their most dangerous memories, the recollections of the promises made by Jesus in his daring agenda for human society, namely that he's at work making all things new. Exiles prepared to practice a set of dangerous promises, promises that point to the kingdom. And, and Christians pray this prayer, your kingdom come, your will be done. On earth, as is, is in heaven. We pray that prayer for Albuquerque, your kingdom come, your will be done. In Albuquerque is, is in heaven. We're seeking the kingdom promise now. We want it now. We're seeking it now. We're praying for it now. Exiles will mock the folly uh, of that empire by offering a dangerous critique of society uh, wracked by greed and lust and selfishness uh, and inequality. And finally, exiles, will sing a repertoire of dangerous songs that speak of an unexpected newness of life. And it was that phrase, that exact phrase, that formed the kind of the beginning sort of uh, philosophy for how we wanted to do worship at New City Church. We wanted to be the kind of place that had anthems every once in a while. You could raise your fist in the air and go, yeah. Like we, this is it. Like we're going to live a different life. We're going to embrace the kingdom reality. We're going to pump our fists in the air and say yes to Jesus and His kingdom. Embracing our minority status as exiles, while while seeking to do a difference and put the kingdom reality of Jesus on display, so that somebody might ask, somebody might inquire as to what and who it is, what it is we're doing and who it is that we worship. And I think there are a few ways for an exiled person who's experiencing the conditions of exile to respond. There are a few ways for us to kind of, kind of respond to that, and one of the ways is to assimilate. In fact, you know, many cultures did when they were exiled. When one, when one society came and conquered, you know, you, then the easiest and sort of path of least resistance is just to assimilate. To give up on your, uh, you know, on your way of life and your culture and your educational systems and all the things that you're about, your worship of your gods, and to just assimilate. And it could have been a uh, real temptation for anybody who was in, was was conquered by Babylon at that particular time, to just give up, and give in. Another thing is to, to resist. You know, you, zealots in the, uh, the the early Christian centuries, you know, were were resistance people and trying to find ways to resist, and were violent even in their resistance. Withdrawal is, is, is another option. Uh, you could get a buggy and uh, you could grow a beard and you, know, you, could, you, know, you could make furniture and you could live totally separate from the rest of society and, and pull away from everything. Uh, but I, I've, I've really been seeking out like, what, what is the right way for an exiled people, a people experiencing the dynamics of exile to respond. And I think sometimes you have to go to Jewish teachers who have a, who have a real sort of mind for Jewish history to give you a, a, a sense of how to interpret life in exile. And so I turned to to Rabbi Jonathan Sachs, and he was really helpful for me in thinking through what does life in exile look like. He says there's a fourth possibility, and that is to become a creative minority. He says it's not easy because it involves maintaining strong links with the outside world while staying true to your faith, seeking not merely to keep uh, the uh, the sacred flame burning, but also to transform the larger society of which you are a part of. This is, as a Jew can testify, a demanding and risk-laden choice. And I think exile is a good metaphor for the current American Christian experience. I think it's it's an appropriate one. Lee Beach agrees. He says, it may be that the motif of exile offers one of the most provocative and potentially fruitful ways for the church to find herself in this particular historical epoch. Now, as many of you know that I spend some of my time on the side working with church planters around the country and around the world that I, I get to have the real privilege to help plant churches all over the place. Uh, and, uh, and it's a real ple- pleasure of mine that I get to participate in that, and I work with the organization of Stadia to do that. Because of that role that I get to do in helping to plant churches, I often get access to data and research that is pretty interesting and I, recently I came uh, across the, uh, a piece of research called The Great Opportunity. In fact, I was given a, a, a pre-release of this particular study back in 2018, and I haven't referenced it in a sermon uh, yet, but it's something I've been sort of mulling over and thinking about. Uh, the the Pine Tops Foundation put together a study of the American Christian missionary context. Uh, they've done this for contexts all over the world, but they did one for the American Christian context, and they came up with some pretty um, interesting findings. They call it the great opportunity because it is a real opportunity, but you can also kind of sense in the data and the research that that something is happening and there's a cultural change afoot. Uh, And and the, the, the study reads this way, the next 30 years will represent the largest missions opportunity in the history of America. It is the largest and fastest numerical shift in religious affiliation in the history of this country. Even in the most optimistic scenarios, Christian affiliation in the U.S. shrinks dramatically, and in our base case, over 1 million youth currently in the church today will choose to leave each year over the next three decades. 35 million youth raised in the church will leave the faith, and that's looking at 2020 to 2050. As far as we can tell, this is the single largest generational loss of souls in history who were nominally raised in the church and no longer call themselves followers of Jesus. To put it in a nutshell sort of statement that puts us in a, in a place to sort of understanding, nonetheless, the base case scenario, there is a worst case scenario that's not um, very pleasant either, but the base case scenario represents a profound shift. One million young people every year. To put that number in context, it is larger to dramatically larger than the number of abortions that occur every year in America. There's a real thing happening. Uh, Alan Roxburgh says it this way in his book, Joining God or Making the Church. He says, if you were born between 1925 and 1945, there's a 60% chance that you are in church today. If you were born between 1946 and 1964, there's a 40% chance that you're in church today. If you were born between 1965 and 1983, there is a 20% chance you're in church today. You probably see the pattern. If you were born after 1984, there's less than a 10% chance that you're in church today. Something is changing. You see, I think the current state of the American church is calling for a posture of an exile, namely that of being a creative minority. And if you're, you know, 45 and older, you feel it probably more profoundly than any other generation. You sense it. Something's changing. Something's changing in the world. Something's changing in the culture. And there's a real question. What do we do? How do we respond to it? Uh, to put this in the church planting context, uh, there are th- uh, three major challenges facing the church in the next 30 years. Church closure rates are rising, population rates are growing, people are leaving the faith. And so uh, a couple years ago, it was a really big victorious moment when we hit 4,000 church plants a year. But to put 4,000 church plants a year domestically in America, uh, this is across denominations. Uh, there are 4,000 churches planted every year in America, 3,700 churches closed every year in America. So we're netting 300 churches uh, in America. And so Pine Top's looking at that region research. research says just to keep up with the rapidly changing American landscape, we need to hit 8,000. We need to double our efforts. And so we need about 8,000 churches every year. So what's going on? Why is it happening? And that's the big question. I'm not a prophet, but I don't mind speaking as one. (laughs) And it's my sense, okay, that in addition to assimilation, resistance, and withdrawal, there's a more dangerous path. And that's the path of syncretism. And I think that is what younger generations are looking ahead to the older generations and they're going, I've seen something here in you that I don't like. You've married the kingdom of God to the kingdom of man. And it's very, very difficult to see where the kingdom of God ends, the kingdom of man begins. And younger people are looking ahead at older generations and they're going, I don't like what you've done to Jesus and his gospel. I don't know that I like Jesus in, the, in his gospel. This is what it is. And I think syncretism is really the real enemy here. Forbes magazine recently published an article that said authenticity is the way to the millennial's heart. What? You know, Every generation has kind of an ide- identity that is built upon what they are seeing lacking in the generation before them. Uh, social media today says, An overwhelming 90% of millennials say brand authenticity is important proving that younger consumers prefer real and organic over uh, perfect and packaged. And I know millennials now all have minivans and mortgages, but it's, it's like, a, it, you know, the, 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 there's still this sort of, the, there's a sense in, in younger and younger cultures, a sense of, hey, I want something real. I want something true. I want something authentic. And syncretism, this idea that I'm marrying my faith to my political identity, or I'm marrying, I'm marrying the kingdom of God to the kingdoms of man, it equals kind of a, a feeling of inauthenticity, and they see it as inauthentic. And they're going, I don't want to be a part of something that's inauthentic. I want something that's true and authentic. And I think the church is at risk of losing both her prophetic critique and her creative problem-solving when she inseparably joins her theology, which was meant to be a critique of empire, to her politics. And I think when those two things are interwoven together, there's a voice that's lost. And so Daniel, in Daniel 1.8, what does Daniel do? He resolves to say, you know what? I'm not going to defile myself with the king's food. Now, what's that all about? I, you know, many people have said, "Well, you know, the food that the king ate was offered to false gods, and he did not want to uh, eat food that was offered to false gods." But I, I think the vegetables could have just as easily been offered to false gods. It's it's probably the case that Daniel is like, "I've got to make a stand someplace, and this is the place I'm going to make my stand because there is a distinction here: that we are not Babylonians, that we don't worship a Babylonian god, that there is a distinction here." And, and, my, and my distinction is defined by who I worship and what I'm about. Stanley Hauerwas says, the most creative social strategy we have to offer is the church. I believe that, by the way. Here we show the world a manner of life the world can never achieve through social coer- coercion or governmental action. We serve the world by showing it something that it's not, namely a place where God is forming a family out of strangers. I think if you are disenchanted by the world and you're frustrated in your faith and you're looking at the world around you and where am I in Christianity and in Christendom where, where do I belong I want to encourage you I think the best critique of the bad is the practice of the better to put the kingdom on display to say, I worship a king, and his kingdom has a certain way of life, and if you come within our, our kind of sub-society within culture that's not against the culture, but it's for God, and sometimes that means we're against, and sometimes it means we're for, but that's not how we define ourselves as being for or against. We define ourselves as being for God in his mission, and as we live for God in his mission, what begins to happen in that kind of radical community, we begin to be, to be agents of good for society, for culture. The Bible teaches how to live as that creative minority. In fact, Jeremiah gives us explicit instructions. He says, when you're in exile, this is what you do. You build houses and live in them. You plant gardens and you eat their produce. You take wives and you have sons and daughters. You take wives and your sons and you give daughters in marriage and they may bear sons and daughters, multiply there and do not decrease. In other words, be in the world, although not of it, but also be for it. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you'll find your welfare. Rabbi Sachs says this. He says, When Jeremiah was saying was that it's, it's, it's possible to survive in exile with your identity intact, your appetite for life undiminished, while contributing to the wider society and praying to God on its behalf. Jeremiah was introducing into history a highly consequential idea, the idea that I have stolen from Rabbi Sachs is this, the idea of the creative minority. He says, it isn't easy. It demands a complex finessing of identities and involves a willingness to live in a state of cognitive dissonance. It is not for the faint-hearted, but it is creative. As the famous philosopher, Bob Dylan said, times are changing and you've experienced it. like You've you sensed it. And so as a Christian, what, what do we do about that? Instead, grabbing for power, and Christians ought to be grabbing for the servant's towel. And, and Jesus changed the world through how he served it, not for how he overpowered it. And there's a posture that we can take within society to be a creative minority, to seek, unique, to, to, seek to solve unique problems within the context that we live. And what's interesting in Daniel 1.17 is that God gave them learning and skill. In all literature, and wisdom, and Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams, for what purpose? To serve a pagan king who worshiped a foreign god, who did vile things, and in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them. Verse 20, they, he found them 10 times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in all his kingdom. By the way, when I was a a young seminary student, I once went to God and said, God, you gave Daniel learning skill and ability. Please give me learning skill and ability. And I felt the Holy Spirit say, study, bro. Just study, all right? So you gotta, you you know, put some work in, homie. Uh, That's how the Holy Spirit speaks to me. I don't know how he speaks to you. What's changed? Lots of things have changed. What hasn't changed? Uh, God hasn't changed. He's not changed one bit. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. He's the same. You see, in ancient cultures, when a nation was conquered, your God was conquered too. That's the way it worked. In fact, when you look at Daniel 1 verse 2, you see that act happening. The vessels of God are taken and put into the treasury of the gods of Babylon. What's what's going on? Well, Nebuchadnezzar is saying, hey, I conquered your God. I didn't just conquer you, I conquered your God. And what Daniel is illustrating here is three unchangeable truths about God. And I think there are important, unchangeable truths. One is that there is only one God and he cannot be conquered. Like he cannot be overcome. Now look at Daniel 1. This is really interesting. Man, I, this is the narrator in Daniel 1 to 6 is doing us a real favor. Let's just read it. Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. Fact. Historical fact. Eyes of the flesh. You see that and you go, okay, that's what happened. That's what we saw. That's what happened. I want to challenge you just for a second, okay? The Bible encourages to fix our eyes not only on what is seen, but on what is unseen, because what is seen is temper, and what is unseen is eternal. And you could read Daniel 1.1, but you shouldn't miss Daniel 1.2, because it says the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hands. So which is true. Did Nebuchadnezzar besiege Jerusalem and take... Yes, he did. But Nebuchadnezzar... Great, no, he's not greater than God. And God gave God's being faithful to himself because he promised it was going to happen because there's a disobedient people. He hasn't lost control. He's totally, absolutely in control. There's only one God and he cannot be a conquered. That's, that's a unique teaching in the scope of religious history to the people of of God. God is sovereign over everything, even the empires of this world. He is sovereign. Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with wine he drank, and therefore he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. Now, in verse 9, you get the second of the God-gave statements. The first is God gave Jehoiakim over to Nebuchadnezzar. The second one here is this. It's like, God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. So here, a leader in the administration of Nebuchadnezzar's leader under his leadership, somehow God does miraculous work and gives Daniel favor. He does something miraculous. He shows that even in a pagan kingdom doing vile things, he's at work. And so there is only one God. He cannot be conquered. God is sovereign over everything, even the empires of this world, and God is forever faithful. What, what I want you to listen to is the very last verse of Daniel 1. It's a powerful verse, and I think it's worthy of our, of our attention. So the steward took away their food and, he gave, and the wine, and, and they were to drink, and he gave them vegetables. As these four youths, God gave them learning and skill and all literature and wisdom. And Daniel had understanding and all visions and dreams. By the way, that's the third of the God gave statements verse 2, verse 9, and verse 17. At the end of the time when the king had commanded that they should, should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. And the king spoke with them, and among all of them, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore, they stood before the king." And in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in all his kingdom. And now here's the final verse. And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. What's that all about? I thought we were talking about Nebuchadnezzar. What's this Babylonian King, What's this Persian king doing showing up in verse 21? It's as if the narrator in Daniel is saying, the kingdoms of this world will come and go, but God's kingdom is forever. And boy, how often do people in, the, come on, the American context get so freaked out about the kingdoms of this world that are temporary, that God's kingdom is forever. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken And thus let us offer God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. And how distracted do we become by all the stuff going on in the kingdoms of this world and get all freaked out and wigged out and not realizing that God is sovereign, He's on His throne, and He's in control, and we are a part of a kingdom that is unshakable. So what has changed? Lots of things have changed. What hasn't changed? God hasn't changed. Or how are we to live in a changed world where we're clinging to what has not changed? I think we have to fight against the urges of assimilation, resistance, withdrawal, and especially syncretism. Dale Davis, in his commentary, says this about this story. I think it's the right approach. He says, the episode didn't have this particular episode of food. Um, There's a miracle there. Uh, They get fat on vegetables, and then learning and their capacity to understand. This episode didn't have crisis written all over it like the raging fire of chapter 3, or we'll get to that in a couple weeks, or the raging lions of chapter 6, we'll get to that in a couple weeks. The circumstances here are far less electrical and so all the more subtle. Sometimes smaller commitments made along the way fortify faith to plant its feet when it has to meet more severe threats. It's almost like Daniel 1, if you see it as an advice tale, if you see it as as, as a way forward, Sure, certainly Daniel puts his feet you know, firmly down and says we're going to live our distinction and food is going to be a place where we're going to make our stand. Seems like a minor thing, a small thing. But it was that small thing that prepared Daniel for making a stand when it came to bowing down to Nebuchadnezzar or you know, facing the, the, the fiery furnace or facing the lion's den. This, this, this kind of commitment is the kind of commitment that is made a small one over time. Those commitments are the ones that prepare you. And I think we have to be willing to live what Mirsoff Wolf calls our soft difference. He calls it a soft difference because we are distinct and we're different, like we belong to God and His mission, and, but it's soft. In, in other words, we aren't finding our distinction by being either for or against the culture. We're for the gospel and Jesus and His mission. And sometimes we can be in agreement with the culture, and sometimes we stand prophetically against the culture, but we're not finding our identity based upon where we are in relationship to the culture. We're finding our identity uh, upon who we are in relationship to Jesus and His mission. And he calls it a soft difference. And I think we have to find ways in living out that soft difference to embrace our role as a creative minority, to seek the welfare for the city, to pray for its renewal, and I really do believe that one of the best critiques of the bad is the practice of the better and to put it on display and to say, this is what Jesus is like. And this is what His kingdom is like. If you want to experience it, come hang out with us because we can show you what it's like. And we put it on display in the world as we let our light shine, as we deal with the darkness, even within our own community. I think we should be seeking creative ways to contribute to the common good while maintaining a margin of distance and difference. And we all have to make some, some decisions like that, you know, It may not be, you know, food before, you know, an emperor leading his empire, but it might be distinctions within the context of your work environment or distinctions in the context of your family environment or distinction in in the context among your friends. And sometimes you have to make a stand and say, I'm standing here on this principle because I worship God and I'm for His mission. It's not because I'm against you and it's not because I'm for you. It's because I'm for Him and He's radically for you. And I'm going to live this life, you know, being molded and shaped in the image of Christ because I'm radically focused, eyes fixed on him and his mission. See, minorities are always under pressure, but creati- creativity needs pressure. In fact, you know, I think creativity thrives under pressure. And so I, don't, I think that all the, all the attempts to try to remove tensions that we feel in society and culture are stupid. Like, embrace the tension and let that tension bring about creativity. Like, be a, be a problem solver. Off, offer, offer the goodness of God to the world around you. Offer the goodness of God in the context of your workplace. Offer the goodness of God in the context of your, your family, wherever you work, live, or play. You know, you, you, pl- apply the, the, you apply this truth to your context. See, sometimes God may allow hardships, says the commentator, to reach us because He wants His mercy to reach beyond us. And so you may be going through a hard time, and exile may be like, yeah, that's the right metaphor for me. I don't belong anywhere, right? If that's you, and you're going through a hard time and a difficult time, Maybe, you know, the hardship you're going through is so that God can bless you in order to be a blessing for others. Maybe it has nothing to do with you at all. And through humility, you might be able to have an understanding that God's doing a work through you for the benefit of others. So no matter what you're going through or how weird life in exile becomes, know that God is sovereign, even if, listen, He's quietly sovereign, I think when I was reading through one to twenty-one, just reading through it over and over and over again, it dawned on me that it just kind of felt like, wow, you know, there's God's not super prominent on the page. It's Nebuchadnezzar and all the things that he's doing, and it would be easy to miss God in it. And I think it's appropriate. that You look at verse two, God gave. Look at verse nine, God gave. Look at verse seventeen, God gave, and. It appears like he's not there, but then he is there, quietly sovereign. And so I came across God of Ages this week, and I've been praying this for myself. I've been praying, teach me to know you, always with me, quietly sovereign, Lord of my now. You know, sometimes I think it's just a helpful line like that could be just a, a game changer for you and me. Teach us to know you, always among us, quietly sovereign Lord of our now. It seems to me that it is the case that God doesn't speak through the noise, but he speaks through the whisper. And it seems to me that society tends to prefer the noise over the whisper. And I sometimes will allow the internal noise of my soul to be turned up to a volume that just it just tends to drown out the quiet voice of God. And my prayer for you is that your heart would be stilled, your presence would be stilled, that you would recognize that he's quietly sovereign, that even by a miracle of God's grace, he might reveal to you how he's been present even in the trial you're facing right now in your life, that he would show his hand on it, that you could look back on it and you go, I can see the evidence of your work in my life even in the difficulty. And when you look at biblical history, that's what you see. When you look at Daniel chapter 1, verses 1 to 21, you see it. Verse 1 reads like, Nebuchadnezzar (laughs) besieges Jerusalem. Verse 2 reads like, God is in complete and total control, because he is. So may your eyes be opened to see what's not only visible to your fleshly eyes, but to see the unseen reality. And may God prove himself to be faithful, even if it is quietly sovereign. Let's pray. Father, I thank you uh, for being dependable and faithful and true to yourself. I I struggle because I, I see the inauthenticity in the world around me, and I see arrogance and pride, and I've been struggling because my response has been arrogant and prideful. <laughs> and it is my temptation to grab for power not to be a servant. Uh, and I... I think I grab for power primarily because I sometimes don't believe that you are in control or that you're good. And I confess right now, just with my brothers and sisters, that you are good, completely, wholly good, and you are in control. There's nothing outside of your reign and rule. And we submit all of our lives right now to you, just collectively, to your reign and rule. Thank you for allowing me to fail and to fumble I thank you for always being faithful and trustworthy. And um, I come to you, Lord Jesus, my Savior. I come to you, Father, in the name of Jesus. Amen.